You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we will talk about a topic we have a lot of questions about, the idea of teaching foundational skills as speech to print. What does this mean? Speech to print is an orientation towards teaching the code based on spoken language to written language. And today, we talk to two experts, Marnie Ginsberg and Tammy Rice Frankfurt, about the research and practical aspects of what speech to print looks like with students. Let's jump in. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we can't wait to deep dive into something we've seen a lot in the literacy world. The idea of teaching foundational skills using an approach known as speech to print. We're wondering, what does this really mean? We have so many questions. Melissa, I know you have so many questions, too. Yeah, and I think we have two wonderful people here today to answer some of our questions. So we have Marnie Ginsberg, uh, the founder of Reading Simplified, and Tammy Rice Frankfurt. She is the founder of Phonic Books, and they're both experts in speech to print approach and I would say just teaching reading in general. So we're so excited and can't wait to learn from them today. All right. So I'm going to start with a little bit of context, and then I'm going to pass it to Melissa, and then we will ask you both to jump in. Start teaching so, us. <laughs> yes. Help us learn. <laughs> so we've read and seen this approach called speech to print. I think it might be helpful to start by sharing a common understanding about what we mean when we say speech to print. And we've learned from you all that speech to print is an orientation towards teaching the code based on spoken language to written language. We know that concepts, skills, and knowledge are foundational components of this approach. So we are going to focus today on the concepts that underlie this approach. Melissa and I were thinking about what concepts underlie speech to print, right? So we know that there's four. And um, Melissa, you're going to share those four with us, right? Yeah, I'm ready. Ready? Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So the four concepts are, number one, letters spell sounds. Um, and I'm, I think they'll talk a bit about the alphabetic principle that goes along with that. Number two, sounds can be represented by one or more letters. Number three, sounds can be spelled different ways. And number four, spellings can be pronounced in different ways. And so we're going to, in this whole episode, talk through those four concepts and you know, what do they mean? What's going on in, with letters and sounds with all of those? And what do actually happens with students? And when you're trying to teach someone, what, 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 what do I do with that, right, in real life with students? Um, so, so we'll talk through all of those with each of those concepts. So we'll start out and let's dive into our first concept. Number one is letters spell sounds. Marnie and Tammy, take it away. Well, I just wanted to start by saying that there's a lot of discussion now in, in cognitive psychology about schemas. The schemas are basically conceptual frameworks that you use to teach complicated things or things which have got lots of bits and pieces that need connections inside. It's a bit like you can say probably the engine of a car. You've got lots of different parts of the engine of the car, but they all need to work together. And I think because uh, English the English script or English alphabetic code is complicated, it's really useful to have a schema. And I would say that the conceptual framework the schema for the alphabetic code are those four concepts that you just laid out. And that means that they are the guidelines for everything we do. They're guidelines for how we teach, they're the guidelines in how we introduce the language we teach, the error correction, all the way to this is how it works, really. Not only this is how each part works, but this is how the different parts work together. And I think uh, Marnie and I are going to argue that the speech to print approach is a very logical schema because we have um, 26 letters, 44 sounds, 
and more than 165, or some people say 167 spellings to represent those 44 sounds. And I would argue that the schema of organizing and understanding the relationship between different spellings and different sounds, et cetera, the bonds that we need to create in order to, in order to develop good reading and fluent reading, um, that organizing all this information according to sounds is a very logical way because we only have 44, 44 sounds to start with. We don't have all those multiple spellings that are so confusing. So I would start and say, first of all, it's a really logical way to organize this rather large piece of information or large bits of information, lots of bits of information that children need to learn uh, when they learn to read. And the other thing I'd like to mention about it is that this is how the alphabetic code or the alpha, alphabetic principle was actually devised. It was devised about 4,000 years ago by some workers in Sinai who couldn't read hieroglyphics. It was just too difficult for them. And they said, let's do something simpler. And the simple thing they did is they took a picture from the hieroglyphics, like they took the image for water, and the image for water was a zigzag horizontal line like a river. And then they said, well, our word for water is maim. I happen to know that because I speak Hebrew, and that's the word. Any, any Hebrew speakers will know that the word for um, water is maim. And we're going to take the first sound, m, and that letter, that squiggly letter, which today looks like an M, came from the picture of a river from hieroglyphics. But from now on, it no longer represented a word. It represented the sound m. And that's how the alphabetic principle was devised. And it was an absolute revolution. I mean, it was probably like the invention of the internet or the invention of the printing press because it's, it, it spread like wildfire with the Phoenicians who were traders around the world. And I can say that were it not for this alphabetic principle being developed in many countries, including Greece and then in Israel itself, probably we wouldn't have Homer's works and we wouldn't have the written Bible. That's how important this um, revolution was. And so I'm, what I'm trying to say is the way it developed, the way it was devised is speech from sounds to letters. And it's very helpful if we stay consistent with that approach. Yes, this is the the roots of the system tell us how to go through the same process to reveal it to children. We're going to draw their attention to the sounds and words. When they say the word mat, we want them to hear that the beginning, mm, that same mm, in the water um, from way back when. Uh, we <laughs> want them to hear that sound. And then attach a symbol to it. And so we can start with their language. This is such a big part of what um, speech to print approaches have in common is that we are not starting with letters. We're not starting with phonological awareness and isolation. We're not starting with any um, subskills. In isolation, we're actually putting them all together in an integrated way to help them understand this whole concept of the alphabetic principle because it's not natural for the child to intuit this because it, the written language is a code for sounds, which Tammy explained. If it's a code, we need to show them the code. And the access um, key for that code is the phoneme. So we draw their attention to the word Matt, and then what sound do you hear at the beginning? Mm, okay, now, which of these little squiggles up here, these spellings, T, A, or M, which of them is M? Mm? And so then they move from sound to symbol, phoneme to grapheme, and they start to build a word. And this is, at the very beginning, unlocking, oh, I get it. This is a code. I can play with the sounds in the language I already know. And lift the start to lift meaning off the page because i understand the code and how all the pieces fit together it's not a letter and then later phonemic awareness and later a real word it's actually starting with the word and showing how the code works putting those pieces together phoneme and grapheme i'm curious this is a really uh, selfish question but um i'm sure that this happens 
to more than just my my child. But, you know, he has picked up a lot of letter names and he knows a lot of, you know, he can point out letters, right? Like this is P, this is M, this is L. And I, I didn't really do that. <laughs> he, he's picked it up from Sesame Street, from, I mean, they do it at preschool. You know, he's picked it up in different places. And I'm just wondering, like, is that something where, you know, if people are listening now and they're like, well, my kid already knows their letters, like they, they know letters. Is Can you still go back to this speech to print and, and, and focus more on the sounds first? Well, there's certainly not at a disadvantage. One of the early things you need to do is be able to recognize those symbols because those symbols are very distinct. The M is different from the N and it's different from the P. And so that's great. He's on his way. Uh, if, if I could devise a world um, where kids would be most rapidly introduced to reading, then he wouldn't have started with the letter names. He would have started with the sounds because the sounds, as I just mentioned, they unlock the code, not only the knowledge of how to put the things together, but the knowledge of how the system works. A child can be um, completely knowledgeable of every single letter of the alphabet and not be able to crack the code. In fact, if you um, work with a, an adult who is completely illiterate, they probably know the letters of the names of the letters. They just mm-hmm. don't know the code. So he's certainly not at any disadvantage by being ahead and recognizing <laughs> the, recognizing the visual array, but the, his next step will be, let's figure out the alphabetic principle because that's really the entree to real reading. The other stuff right. is preliminary. It's fine. And it is really curious that here in the U S we do as you said, you didn't teach this. It's just everywhere. It's in the air we breathe that we're going to teach the letter names. But that's not the way it is in all cultures. And even um, in the UK, I'll let Tammy speak to that. They start not with a letter name, but the letter sound, right? There is different preference, not only in the speech to print, actually in most programs, to start with letter sounds. Uh, because... Um, as even now, I think it's uh, Dehane says, what the teacher needs to be focused on is those sound to letter bonds. Uh, initially, we don't need the letter names. We don't need letter names until we need to do, uh, we need to actually possibly do more complex spelling. So we have to use the letter names. Or if we do uh, need to, ha- to learn alphabet, the, uh, the skills of um, ordering by alphabet, or organizing by alphabet. Um, but we find also, in my experience, as a lot in, in special needs, that often letter names are obstacles because so many letter names, like take the word, the, the letter W, children come away with the notion that D is the sound that's linked to W, or the letter Y that w is connected to the letter Y, and that, is, that sows confusion. And, of course, it's many children – don't experience that. But I, I think that many interventionists will say that this is a problem for those children who don't uh, get around the obstacle of learning two things at the same time, both letter name and sounds. So one of the things that's common to all the speech to sound is uh, a preference or a, a, a clear priority for sound first, securing sounds, and then introducing letter names. Do you have any... Um... I mean, do you want to talk any more about like specifics for teachers? Like what would this look like if you, let's say a student was walking into your uh, you know, classroom or you're teaching a whole class of students or you have one student who you're maybe tutoring or giving some special attention to? Like what, where do you even start? How does this actually look? That's one of my favorite things to talk about because I think so many phonics, traditional phonics programs will start with letter names for weeks and weeks and weeks and you don't actually get to decoding a real word maybe till the 13th week of kindergarten or the first year of school. And that is not only a sluggish start, it's also not revealing the alphabetic principle all all those weeks. It's just let's learn this letter and then let's learn that one. So I like to begin with what I mentioned earlier, we're just going to build a word and I'm going to have a board with some lines on it with three letter sound cards and they're going to be scrambled. So let's go back to Matt. I like it because it begins with a continuant consonant. So this child can hear that more easily and start to separate it from the rest of the word in Matt. So that's how she can segment the begin to segment. So she sees, oh, that this beginning sound connects to that beginning letter. And that's how the alphabetic principle works. Dehan says, let's uh, help kids attend to the phoneme so that they can 
build these bonds. So the child is presented with this board, some letter sounds, we're going to build a word. And I'm going to draw my finger along the bottom of the lines and say, we're going to build the word mat. So I connect it, but exaggerate and elongate it. And then that starts to draw her awareness that might have been really hidden. She didn't really notice that Mm, is the first sound in mat if she's a beginner, but we can learn it right then and there. And then we can um, then connect it to graphemes or spelling. So she, I say, what do you hear at the beginning of mat when I say it? And hopefully she can come up with mm. And if she doesn't, then I can say, well, I hear mm at the beginning of mat. Can you say that with me? Mm. And then so that's step one. That's the beginning of how the alphabetic principle works, right? It's the phoneme. The second step is, which of these is a picture or a spelling of mmm? She may know this because she's in an environment like your son, Melissa, but it's just, you know, <laughs> even if you're not trying to teach it, they may be recognizing the letters <laughs> from Sesame Street or whatever. So she has opportunity to pick the, the letter M. But if she doesn't, then I say, well, this one and I tap it. This is mm. now pull that mm down and put it right there at the beginning of mat. And then you continue the process. What do you hear next when I say mat? And we exaggerate, elongate so she can start to be aware of things that's not really been part of her consciousness. And she's Hopefully can come up with ah, and which one is the is the ah? And notice the whole time I'm saying the sound or the phoneme. I'm not saying which one is a, because there's no a in that <laughs> in terms of sounds. Um, and then we we build the word and we check it. Um, oh yeah, what did you, you built the word mat? Tell me each sound. And I tap and she says mm, ah. T. Did you know you could build a word? You just built your first word mat. She's done so many things with that. She's not learning the letter sounds, which we all think is like the beginning's first step in, in, in reading education, but actually she's doing much more. She's getting the alphabetic principle, which I think is the, the, real, the real first step of cracking the code, which goes back to what Tammy said. This is how the code was devised. It's an alphabetic principle. Let's teach them that the, the written code is, is a picture for sounds. Um, so she's doing letter sounds. The alphabetic principle, she's developing early phonemic segmentation, early spelling, and maybe a little bit of decoding. All of that pack bundled up into one little game that she's probably had fun with. And then we could continue from there with into more, more letter sounds and more, more complex words. But that's how you begin. Well, I'd like to just go back to the word schema of see how many things have slotted in just from that little lesson. You're looking at the skills, at the the one of the one-to-one correspondent skills. You're looking at the blending, the segmenting. So much has happened in that one very small lesson. So much conceptual understanding and skills building, and it's very, very coherent. Um, you notice that um, that Marnie didn't introduce the letters separately; they were within words, and that's very typical of speech to sound. We actually teach within words. We don't have flashcards of just saying this is or this is. Mm. Everything works together because actually building a word is more meaningful. If you're building the, building the word mat, it's much more meaningful than just flashing the mm at separately. And so um, this is very important. Um, and everything we do, like the language you, that, that Marnie used, you know, which is a word, what, what is the sound here? And, and, um, and connecting the letter, all that supports that alphabetic principle. So you can see that. Uh, and of course, this is also very important for error correction when you're reading with a child and they make an error. So, for example, if they read the word, um, they read the word blog as bog, then you would point out that that you don't hear bog, you hear blog and you'd point your finger underneath that L blog and get them to identify the missing the connection between the letter and the sound that they'd missed when they read the word bog. So everything we do goes back to letter spell sounds and the letters represent phonemes. So I'd just like to mention also that this raises the issue of whether it's worthwhile to spend a lot of time teaching phonemic awareness without letters. If we're actually aiming, if we're aiming to get those letter sound bonds that we know we need to develop, that Dehane talks about so, so importantly, about make, making automatic recall connection between the letters you see on the page and the sound, 
should we be spending a great deal of time on phonemic awareness activities which are not at the phoneme level? And there's been some discussion about that recently, I think. Um, I think, was it um, Dr. Susan Brady who was talking about it, that some other skills like rhyme, they are useful, but not at that early stage. And that especially now that we're working with children who might have had learning loss, we should focus on what's important, what's essential. If we're working at the phoneme level and we're trying to connect the phoneme to a symbol, then we should stick with that. Absolutely. I was just going to, before we move to the next one, I was going to ask about, you You all mentioned Dehane a few times, and we were going to ask you about research, but you already dropped it in there throughout. So for just for anyone who doesn't know who that is or what his research is, can you just give like a very brief recap? Well, Stanislas Dehane is a... Um, neuroscientist, and he has a lot of interests. Lately, he's been talking about um, consciousness. And before that, he did math. And before that, he did reading and his very influential work. And and, um, he summarized um, his work and the work of others in the book called Reading in the Brain. And it's, it's over 10 years old now. It's but it's helped a lot of people understand the process that we've been talking about that um, is not uh, the brain does not recognize whole words um, at the beginning stage. And, and how do we go through the process of from the very earliest stages of a child um, only recognizing language to moving to the spot where they can lift the word off the page in a millisecond? Uh, he explains that in depth. And there are also some nice YouTube videos that sh- where he shows um, brain scans that, that uh, show the pr- Wow, different p- regions of the brain as they're attacking the different parts of what we're kind of calling the reading triangle of phonology, morpho- um, phonology, semantics, and orthography. All those parts are, are working together and, and his work and among many others shows um, that what people have studied before with psycholo- psychology experiments, we can actually now see with these scans and it's really stunning how partly one just stunning that we can see it, but also it's really amazing how fast it happens. Everything connecting so quickly. Yeah. Because if it, it's amazing, uh, it's, it, it's a wonderful book to read because of these connection, he does recommend that the teacher time is best spent on developing those automatic bonds. Um, so basically what we're trying to get is the, the recognition of the letters and the immediate, the automatic millisecond attachment of sound that we need in order to become fluent decoders and eventually fluent readers when the when the plate when the, the words just fly off the page. Before we move on to the second concept, is there anything that you briefly want listeners to know about this first one, letters spell sounds to pull it together? It it might be helpful to bring up right now this um, the connectionist model of reading popularized by Seidenberg and McClelland, and I alluded to it earlier. Um, the child comes to the, uh, to school already having a very amazingly sophisticated language network. She knows tons of words. That's the semantics or meaning. And she has connected those also to the sounds and words. That's the phonology. So I'm just right now, I've built a line between two points of a triangle. If you can keep those points in your mind, semantics and phonology, like a connecting line, that's already really sophisticated for the child. It's amazing. They can note 5,000 words, maybe 10,000. I don't know. Um, It's hard to pin down how many words a a person knows. Um, So... All that are, all that we have to do, all that we have to do, it's not that big a deal. We just build off of that existing system. We say, oh, as I mentioned earlier, we're, you have the word mat. What, how does it connect to these spellings or orthography? And now we fill in the rest of the triangle. Um, so semantics, phonology, and orthography are the points of a triangle that defines um, the process that we go through to recognizing words, both in the early stages when we're doing the hard work of, of sound-based decoding, what sometimes people call sounded out, um, and then also when we're sophisticated, mature readers and we lift a word off the page where our brain is connecting all of those networks, as I mentioned earlier, in a split second. So if I say the word zebra, you bring up the orthography to some extent. I'm triggering you th- you, you to think about Z-E-B-R-A. 
And you're also thinking about the image and the meaning of an, of an animal with black and white stripes and maybe some associations of that zebra, maybe from a zoo or in Africa, running away from a lion. And you also hear the sounds, the phonology, zebra. And so this is what we know about how the brain learns to read. This triangle model is a great model or, you know, just a, a, a picture of what what's going on in a very integrated way. It's not like you go from A to B to C in a very linear way. They're all connected and mi mi mingled together. The brain just on these brain scans, it just lights up all over the place, figuratively speaking. To us, it looks like it's lighting up. So if uh, th th so I bring this up here because it's telling us that language we already know is very integrated, but also um, recognizing words is all integrated with language. And we can then use the skills and the aptitudes that the child brings to the, to the first day of school to connect to pr the printed language. Instead of parking that language system for several weeks and saying, we're going to work, work on P. This is P. Everybody say P or say P. That's hard to connect to that other part of this, the language system, at least for the beginner who doesn't get what you're doing. Some kids, of course, get it because they've had other experiences or they're really good with phonemic awareness. Some children have a natural aptitude to pick it up really quickly. Others do not. And so when we don't make these connections very plain, we can befuddle some kids, especially in the beginning stages, or even if they're struggling and we're intervening and we're spending a lot of time with phonics knowledge in isolation, it's hard for them to connect it to the bigger picture. So the more that we can take these principles, these four principles or concepts, and including letters, um, spell sounds and think of them in, in light of this connectionist model where everything is connected. And so if our instruction can be connected, we're probably going to make better sense to the children. If we can do that, I think they will pick up reading much more rapidly and we will feel so much more success as teachers. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you for bringing up that model right here. I know that helps me kind of situate this in that within that. So thank you. Okay. I want us to move to the next one because I, I, this is one of my favorite ones. This is one of my favorite concepts. Um, I feel like it just, I love seeing it kind of blow kids' minds when, <laughs> when you tell them this. Um, so the second concept is sounds can be represented by one or more letters. And I'm, I, I just want to make sure I have a clear understanding here. Is it one, two, three, or four letters? that sounds can be represented by? Is it up to four letters? Okay. So can I, can I start by giving a couple examples to situate us? Okay, here we go. So I'm going to give a couple examples here. You tell me if these are right or not. <laughs> All right. Through. Through. Start with a hard one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you. Boo. Who. So each of those words has the oo sound represented by one, two, four. I think I skipped three, maybe. <laughs> but four letters. So there's there's one or more letters making that that sound. Um, so I'm wondering if we could start with those same questions that we asked about the first uh, concept, which are like, what does this mean in a speech to print approach? And then we can get really practical and in, in practice after that. But you, know, you want me to hand it over? Who would like to go first? Marnie, you want to go ahead? Or, so or Tammy? I, I just wanted to start to say that um, this is um, a result. This is not with every, in every script. This happens to be the one of the most difficult scripts of all scripts. And it's a result of historic loaning and borrowing and taking words from every different culture and for lots of reasons, which we won't go in right now. But if you're Italian, you're probably going to learn to read in three or four months because there's one-to-one -one correlation in most words. There might be one to two, but you don't have this complexity. What this principle uh, or this concept means is that English is a very has a very complex, complex alphabetic code. So it's all the more reason necessary to teach it in a very systematic 
and logical way and to organize it in a logical way. And that goes back to that schema we were talking about, it organizing in a way that's it's understood. How do we organize all these different spellings, 165 or more? I mean, if you wanted to go down looking at words like pharaoh or indict or, or, or I've got a list here, uh, zucchini, behove, all these are very unusual spellings that kind of stand on their own. They don't even belong anywhere, right? And apparently there are 500 of them. So um, what it means is this is something complicated and we need to teach it in an explicit, systematic way, but also in a logical way. And that doesn't always happen if you're starting from the the um, the letters. Give you an example. O-U-G-H, right? is often a family that is used for spelling. But it can be through, which is th, r, u, three sounds, and the u is the o-u-g-h. It can spell do, like d-o. And some people would also include the words like, like rough, which is completely different sound, which actually is not an o-u-h spelling. It's r. So you have the A for O-U and the F for G-H. This, you can sow a lot of confusion if you start from those 165 spellings and try and teach them and not start from the sounds because we only have 44. So that's a much more organized. And if I kind of think of my, if my draw, of my draw at home when I have my my, you know, my jewelry in one place and my whatever, my knickers in the other and my stockings in the other. It's much better to organize it in that way, right? And be consistent and logical. And that's why the speech to sound always starts from speech, from the sound, and then goes to the spelling and not the other way around because the other one is very confusing. And even in really good books, you find errors such as the one I've explained to you, that you look at the O-U-G-H spelling and think it's one sound. It's not. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's one, etc. So this is an example of the, the confusion that sets in if you work from the 165 towards the 44 sounds and not the other way around. And Louisa Motes, who wrote the book Speech to Print and is the developer of letters, she explained this mismatch in 1998, she wrote one of the most fundamental flaws found in almost all phonics programs, including traditional ones, is that they teach the code backwards. That is, they go from letter to sound instead of from sound to letter. The print to sound or conventional phonics approach leaves gaps, invites confusion, and creates inefficiencies. So, Lori, you actually kind of provoked a very advanced concept because you were helping, you were pointing out that um, that one sound could be multiple um, spellings. And one thing that happens in a lot of speech, speech to print programs is that we, we don't, we, we, we try to reveal as much of the code as quickly as possible, but we don't dump it all on them immediately. So did I pick a bad example? I went in. No, no, it's very sophisticated. (laughs) It's very you know, I don't start with ooh because there's, I don't even, I don't think I know all the ooh spellings. They're just, <laughs> they just go on and on. It's just been <laughs> repurposed ad nauseum. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, so I think some people that may have a traditional phonics approach, they might hear what we're saying and they say, yeah, you can say you can organize it, but you're going to get to cough or, and you just told me it was ooh and through and how, you know, well, what we do is sort of a gradual revelation. So we, we give them order. This schema that Tammy was talking about, that one sound could be multiple spellings. And, and many programs, they just start with the high-frequency spellings. For instance, with Reading Simplified, I start with the sound O. And it can be the O in go, the O in uh, show, the O in boat, the O in home, the O in toe. There's others like the O and dough, like pizza dough that Tammy pointed out, but we just don't begin there. You could for sure give them all, many of them, but it's low frequency. There's only a few words that have it, so you can leave it off. And so they can um, get the concept that one sound can have multiple spellings 
And that gives them order and organization from the first time you introduce it or within a few days or hours. Um, it's more logical. What, what happens with traditional print to, to print to speech? Um, print to sound programs is that the child can't possibly figure out this logic because on right. in September on Wednesday it's OA or actually maybe September it would be the O by itself like in go and then two months later you see OA and three months later you see OW you may never see OE in your first year and so only the very swiftest kid can cobble together this behind the scenes on their own or we could just present it hey this is one sound and it's got multiple spellings and so it's a hook it's a it's a schema it's it helps them have a way to organize that information we wouldn't teach the solar system by not showing the whole picture of the solar system right we don't just teach um today is jupiter let me teach you all about jupiter but i'm not going to show you jupiter in relation to earth or relation to the sun and right. next week, I might show you something, a planet called Mercury. Is it still a planet? No, Pluto's the questionable yeah. one, right? Yeah. Mercury's down the, oh, I got my ends of my solar system. <laughs> so okay. we, don't teach, we don't teach many things in a haphazard way. We try to create organizing schemas. And, but because of our history of thinking that English was so illogical, we've just had a lens of a mature adult reader analyzing the spelling system instead of analyzing the way the code works, which is a much more natural way to figure it out. And there is a pretty consistent logic to it. This was, I, I think, a revolutionary discovery of, of Diane McGinnis. And a lot of, of speech-to-print programs have been born out of her work. And she organized the these four principles and showing us this is how the code works. It's going from sound to, to symbol. Let's and organize this. Let's organize it by sound. Let's do O this week and next week we're going to do E. And there's multiple spellings of E. And and then later, back to the original point about the complexity, it can be uh, re released to kids later that actually, and we'll get to this. The O W. Hmm. It was O last week, but now it's Al. What are we going to do with that? And we can re we can get to that. And as we develop. Um, their understanding, but we don't have to start with all of the information at the in the first few weeks, but give them um, the sound as a hook, which really helps them sort that information. And um, and and we can talk also if it's if it's timely about like activities that make this really doable and it doesn't overwhelm kids. Yeah, I would love that. I think the examples are always so helpful. <laughs> I'd like to jump in here and just say that with regard to the, the second principle that, that sounds can be spelled by one to four letters, it's really important to understand the concept that children are at. So for example, we start with one-to-one -one correspondences in words like cat, which every letter spells one sound. And from then, mm -hmm. uh, some programs, I mean, the, the one that, that we follow, um, then goes on to double consonant. Well, the leap isn't very big to understand that if L um, usually, well, if L spells the sound ool, at two Ls in doll also spell the sound ool, right? So that's not a very big step. And then from that step onwards, we introduce two different consonants can spell one sound. So the letter S and H spell sh, as in ship. And then once we've done two, we can then move to three. And we look at we word build in exactly the same way that Marnie described for the word mat. We build the word night. N I T. And now we're working with a grapheme which has three letters. So if you are aware of that concept, the whole way you teach is scaffolded so the children are following you and they're not surprised when they get to the word through because they know that in English a sound can be spelled by one to four letters. And this is one of the four, that the, one of the graphemes that has four letters. It's very natural if you're using exactly the word building practice that Marnie gave as an example, even for a word like through. You put them on cards in front of the child, build the word, and that immediately un unlocks the code, demystifies the complexity, right? 
And of course, you do that with coffin with you do that with coffin with rough and with through. But each time that would belong to a different family of sounds, because we're not talking about the same thing. It's the same thing if you look at the spelling. It's not the same thing if you start from the sound to the spelling. And Tammy helps uh, disentangle some of what I said because I cannot help myself from getting jumping ahead. So I was mixing in all of these principles basically when I was answering that question. But that's a really good response from Tammy to to kind of really zero in on that concept that sounds can be represented by one, two, three, or even four letters. Yeah. So final question here for sounds can be represented by one or more letters. What does the research say about this concept? Well, as I mentioned uh, before, I think Diane McGinnis was the one that that made the biggest impact um, to point this principle out. Just this is how the code works. And, And there's a logic to it. And then we have programs that then you could study that use that logic, but it's less of a, we have less evidence on if you organize your reading instruction this way per se, then do you get X outcome? We just ha- don't have that level of sophistication yet with the research on programs or individual elements. Um, we have so much more research on how the brain learns to read. And, and then we have research and thinking on the, the linguistic system. And I think that's what Diane McGinnis did so well, that this is the way the system works. And if you, if you examine everything through the lens of the phoneme, the system is consistent. Um, you, almost all the time there's, you know, there's going to be VE at the end of a word, it doesn't just happen the word have. It happens multiple times. When you see a pattern that this spelling is representing a sound v in a certain way over and over again, there's there's a logic to it. And so um, I think what's helpful is to tie back this principle to the models of the brain of how we learn to read, the triangle model. It's a connectionist model putting linking these things, and this just is – our argument is it's a logical, common sense way to be in alignment with what we know about the, how the brain learns to read. I think that, that McGinnis's work is huge contribution simply to understanding this is how it works. This is how it's constructed, right? And you can't really argue with that because, um, because of the history you have and lots of very random reasons why words are spelt, if you actually analyze how the how the, the relationships between the phoneme and the different spellings are, you've come to the conclusion that phonemes can be spelt with one, two, three, or four. It's kind of description. And that can't be disputed in a way because that's the way it's built. That's that's the way with all the layers of <laughs> French and German and Saxon and all the other language, Greek, Latin, we've come we've come away with a very mixed salad of a language in which phonemes can be represented not by one-to-one correspondence like in many languages or two maximum, but four. And that is a very difficult uh, script. I want to head into that fourth concept. Spellings can be pronounced in different ways. And I think we've kind of been maybe talking a little bit about this throughout. It's like, again, it's all integrated, right? It makes very logical sense. So, (laughs) um, what does this mean in a speech-to-print approach that spellings can be pronounced in different ways? I'll hand it to Tammy first. Well, we Marnie gave that example of the letter, the spelling O-W. It can sound O like in snow, and it can sound ow like in how. And this is very confusing <laughs> because um, often children learn the sounds of the alphabet, and very soon, for example, they learn the letter A. They see the letter A inside the word was, and it's not a as an apple, and they see it in any. It's not a as an apple, or they see it as uh, in table, and it's not a as an apple. So confusion. Coming back to um, the complexity of our code, this is just the other side of the complexity of our code. We need to teach this explicitly. So in the same way that children realize, oh, that's just another way of spelling a, no problem, right? It just adds to our understanding that A can be spelled in different ways. 
We then reverse that. And after we've taught a little bit of the code, we say, you know, we've just learned OW in snow. And we've also learned OW in how. You're right. OW can spell, can be sounded out two different ways. And you teach this explicitly, right? You teach explicitly. And the best way to do that is, again, by sorting activities. You give them a list from the two different sounds that that spelling can represent, and they have to sort them out into teams, right? And then they see for themselves, well, that's just another feature of English, that sometimes letters can be pronounced in different ways. And that demystifies the complexity of the, of the code. It goes back to the schema. And this is why these four principles are very important because they are actually just descriptors. This is how it works. Let's work with how it works. Now, um, this is very, very important in reading because often children make mistakes. Like they'll read the word, let's say, uh, snow. They might read it as snow. And you can tell them that can be ow, but in this word, it's the O one. No problem, no failure. It's just the way it works. We have to try this, we have to try that, and that one works in this sentence because we're talking about snow. We're not talking about cows or whatever, right? Um, now, Mommy <laughs> um, has a really good demonstrations on her website of actually a little exercise um, of, of of doing that, of deciding where does this where does this O W spelling belong? Does it belong with the our group or does it belong with the O group? And they have you have to sort the words. Great activity. And what research is showing us is that this is actually the second decoding skill that kids need. Just in the last few years, there's been a, a flurry of research on this concept of set for variability, which is a big uh, term that means mispronunciation correction. So as Tammy pointed out, if the kid reads snow as snow, they've mispronounced it. Then they have to have the cognitive flexibility to play around with the sounds in that word to come up with snow. And that's different than blending the sounds because the child actually blended the sounds right. That's the first decoding skill. Ow. Blending's not a problem. That's the first decoding skill. The second one we have to build is the cognitive flexibility. At Read Simplified, we call it flexit. Yes, that could be ow, as Tammy said. Um, but snow is not a word. What else could this be? And try to put the burden on them to develop that cognitive flexibility. And if they can't do it, then you say, well, this is O. And this is a what we're still using today as mature readers. When we come to a funky pharmaceutical word that we've never seen, we play around with the sounds. We don't know if it's O or O or O or A or we have to play around with the sounds. And this all comes back to the, the triangle model and phonology. And we, so we need to build the, the rapid processing of phonemes and graphemes and words and, and uh, phonemic awareness unlocks the code, but it also develops our knowledge of the code. And, it, and as we develop our knowledge of the code, we get better and better phonemic awareness. So we want to give children the opportunity to try one sound and if it doesn't work, try another to develop this cognitive flexibility. And a lot of curricula protect the child from untaught information for months, if not years. And as a result, they don't actually have many opportunities to practice this cognitive flexibility. I'm just saying, because you need to know a certain amount of the code. You need to know that the possibility is O to choose. And so there's no agreement on how much of the code you need to teach, but you need to teach a significant amount of it and those concepts that we talked about for the child to know, well, could be this, could be that. Otherwise, they don't have the tools at their fingertips in order to do that. And that also connects very, very well to two theories that I'm going to hand over to Marnie. <laughs> One is statistical learning. And the other is the uh, David Shares. Um, um, now, what's this theory? I've forgotten it. The David Shares theory. <laughs> Self-cheating theory, both connected to this flex to flexibility to use the tools you have in your toolkit to teach yourself. Marnie, you, you explain this very well. So a traditional phonics approach would suggest that a child can't know what sound to, to produce when they come across an unknown word without having a rule to apply. 
But actually, we know that that's not how the brain learns to read. The, the brain um, observes patterns and subconsciously can predict things. So if I show you guys the word J-E-A-D, which is a nonsense word, you'll probably guess it's Jed because you have learned the pattern through repetition of reading from dead and lead and red bread that even though that's a lower frequency sound for EA, but when you put attach it to the D you've learned that subconsciously. Um, I don't think I'm gambling that none of us here were explicitly taught that rule. So-called rule, but we've, we can extrapolate it because our brain is observing patterns. And this is where we get into some tricky things because in the science of reading movement, we've been fighting for years against the notion that reading is natural like language. We have been trying to make the case today that we have to explicitly teach things and help kids combine their, um, their, their existing fun language network to this new printed network. We, explicit instruction is absolutely critical. And yet, we are not actually teaching all of the phonics information. We're not teaching all of the words. Um, the child is, let me stick with the statistical learning information first. So the child is picking things up through observing patterns because they've been exposed to this information in real reading and they've played around with the sounds and they try, they came to the word bread for the very first time. They tried breed and it didn't make sense in the sentence. So then they flipped it to bread and their, their brain is off to the races. The next time they see a word maybe dead, they might just blurt out dead before they say deed. And yet the child, if you ask the child, is there a rule for when EA, when EA should be E and when it should be E? They won't know. Because they're just, it's a subconscious thing that's happening in the back. So we, on, we have to begin the process of teaching reading explicitly. And we also have to trust that the brain is observing a lot of patterns through just exposure to this information, constant exposure to the code and playing around with it. And then that leads into this self-teaching theory, which is well-researched. It began, it got a, a, some significant attention, an excellent paper from David Scheer in 1995. But then there's been other studies that have validated it that... We're not explicitly teaching kids every sound every, or every grapheme, every bit of phonics information. We're not teaching them every word. Rather, they're mostly self-teaching themselves through reading, trying to play around with sounds and words and get, getting more and more knowledge every day. Um, so all that's needed is sufficient phonemic awareness, sufficient phonics knowledge, and a decoding strategy. Just three things. You don't have to have all of the phonics information. I I kind of remember when I learned how to read the word pterodactyl, I was like totally stumped by the PT, but I kind of played around with the rest, aerodactyl. And I was like, I had heard that word. So I had a semantic connection. And then I, I said, well, I guess this, this funny thing at the beginning must be t. And then probably the next time I saw pteranodon, I probably said t. Or maybe it took, sometimes it takes some kids more, more trials, but it's the same process. Um, and if I saw PT by itself in isolation when I was a second or third grader, when I figured this out, I might not have been able to, I might not have known that really quickly it was to, because it wasn't sophisticated knowledge yet. It wasn't really deep and I hadn't integrated it with spelling and, and reading. So this is, instead of scaring us as teachers, this should be exciting. We should know, we should be eager to explicitly teach our kids how the code works, the alphabetic principle, teach them some core sounds that are high frequency and then give them a lot of opportunities to read where we guide them with feedback, corrective feedback. And this is another element of the speech to print approach that's important because we're organizing the code by the way it um, it's designed and we're giving kids these hooks. They actually learn the code much more quickly. So we get into real text more quickly. So then they can have more opportunities for statistical learning. Because if you have a phonics program that's just going to release the EA as E, and, and it's, you know, good luck getting to second grade, and maybe you'll see that it can be F. Um, 
Right. The child cannot possibly observe the pattern and they can't also have tried one sound and try another. So both of these, all of these things that are developing in the research world about statistical learning and set for variability and self-teaching, they all show us a path towards a more and more implicit learning. And Mark Seinberg um, has been talking about this, that. And it, it doesn't mean that reading, learning to read is natural in any way, but there are some processes that we, of how we learn to read, how we learn the oral language that do relate to how we learn written language. Some of this mm. implicit learning of statistical patterns is similar. It's just that we can't get kids started that way because the code is so complex. It'll just <laughs> goes right over our head as beginners. We don't see the code. It's, it's very, um, it's hidden. And so we have to reveal it through explicit instruction and then get as quickly as we can to real reading and we just coach them. And if they come to xylophone, well, this is funny. This is not that common, but in this um, word and you point to the X, this is the sound Z. And I don't know, is there another letter that in xylophone? No, it's just the X. <laughs> you know, I don't write the word xylophone. I'm not, I don't have, um, I don't have great re recall of that spelling, but um, yeah. So you just let them know, isn't that funny? And this word, this is actually a z at the beginning of this word. And so when you write xylophone, let's write it. Z I and you just connects again, speech to print. So that's what I think is so important about the error correction when it really completely circles back to the principle three, that, that sounds can be spelled in different ways. Oh, this is just another way to spell z, right? No big deal. But also when you see uh, a spelling representing um, a different sound, you say, well, that could be o, but in this word, it's ow. Or that could be e, but in this word, it's e, like the ea spelling. It's simply the language which totally reduces the stress, the confusion, because it's not something unusual. There are many, many letters that have different combinations. The SH is suddenly a different sound <clears throat> or letters that spell are pronounced different. And it's just the way you speak about it that kids get used to it. Kids can get used to complicated things if they're organized well and if the language is reassuring and repetitive. It's, we always talk about the same things that, that sound can be spelled in different ways and that letters can represent different sounds. And the brain can, can do this statistical learning more, most easily, I think, if we pr present a somewhat controlled environment for them initially, and then we just gradually expose them to more and more and more. And so I have often begun programs where we just start with short vowels. And that's predictable. And it kind of helps me understand the alphabet principle as a beginner. But then I'm going to quickly move into what Diane McGinnis called advanced phonics, like the O sound could be multiple spellings because I don't want them to misunderstand the way the code works. We got to hit these four principles as quickly as we can. And so that'll be another revelation as we get to that next level. And then the final level would be, oh, and you know, we've got that OW, we got to deal with that. And so you're just revealing this quickly to children, but not in the first week. And so it's manageable and the brain does learn um, EA. It's mostly E. And then there's some kind of exceptions, um, but it's not either or. It's not just it follows the rule. It doesn't follow the rule. It's just actually a continuum of highly re regular to less and less regular. And that also doc Dr. Mark Seidenberg has talked about that, um, which helps us again, release the burden of feeling like you have to teach rules because it's not dichotomous, just it's either A or B. It's really a continuum of highly regular, like the A, the A in cat to less and less regular, like the A in yacht. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was going to say that Tammy mentioned like it takes stress off of students if they, you know, don't have to remember all those rules. But I would say it takes stress off the teachers, too, to not have to answer the, well, why is this one spelled this way versus, like, I don't know all the whys. And, and I, you don't have to know, right, to be able to just say, there are different ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the whys are a question of history. And so we can all get into right. history and etymology is interesting, but it's not <laughs> what you need to be able to learn to read. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that the set for variability is the thing that to me, really gives me the permission to kind of say, 
Okay. You know what? Let's try it. Let's, let's, let's see if that, those letters that make a different sound. Let's try. And it, it, it makes me feel more confident as a teacher, um, thinking about, I guess, I guess what I said before, like giving myself the permission to not have to know all the rules. That feels really scary to me. Um, and I know some of the rules, right? But I don't have all of them memorized. Um, and I, I think that that permission to give yourself permission to if you don't know a rule, like even if you are teaching in like a quote speech to, or print to speech approach, I think it's okay if you if you're not sure to just say there's lots of different ways that this this could be spelled. <laughs> or this is, you know, and I think that's okay. So I'm, I, I just want to thank you both for making it so simple and, and kind of drilling it down to like giving teachers and students both the permission to allow themselves to just say, there's lots of different ways to spell this. There's lots of different ways that these letters go together to make this sound. That's it. This one sounds like this. Exactly. One of the things that also does away with apart from lots of rules, which are quite stressful and often don't actually work. We haven't talked about the fact that the rules don't always work with every word. But the other thing you get rid of is the idea of silent letters. Because if you're talking about phonemes, you have to stick to, let's hear the sound and what are the letters that represent that sound. Take the word climb. I'm sure there's a good reason why there's that be there. But it doesn't matter right now. What matters at the moment is that it spells the sound mm. And it's just another alternative. No big deal. I guess we have to wrap up. Before we leave, I'm wondering if you guys could share one or two resources if people are interested in learning more about this approach. I know we've named a few throughout the episode, but if you want to repeat them to make sure people know where to look to learn more. Yes, if you go to readingsimplify.com and then there is a little magnifying glass to search and you type sort it, you'll find several free things and lots of video examples of it in action, along with this kind of instructional sequence that I was talking about. So you can test this out this week for the, most of the time we have the O sound available and with, with text that target multiple spellings along with the sorted, um, it's a really a worksheet, one sound, multiple spellings. And along the way, we, we include a key sentence as a mnemonic, because to remember, what are all those <laughs> um, spellings? So for O, it's go home to show the boat to Joe. And those are the main spellings of O. And then help the teacher and the student <laughs> remember them. And Marnie, you have like general trainings and things too that people could sign up for on your website if they just want to learn more about speech different. Yes, generally. yes. And I, I, one of our most recent um, blog posts is a, a video about speech to print that I shared with Donna Heitmanick's group, The Science of Reading, uh, what I should have learned in college Facebook group. Um, and if this, if you're listening to this in the future, just again, just search for speech to print on our website at readingsimplified.com and you'll find that. And we also have um, one of our most influential workshops just called Three Activities a Day to Keep Reading Difficulties Away. And it includes talking about sort it and two other ones that are very quintessential speech to print approach called switch it and read it. So those are, we have a lot of uh, complimentary trainings and actual handouts, word lists, how to's on our website. And us here at Phonic Books, we have, as I mentioned, go to our phonicbooks.com website, click on resources, and you have a treasure trove of resources, including charts of different ways to spell the different vowel sounds. You have also charts of one sound, um, one spelling, different sounds. You have the, the free decodable books that I mentioned with the, with the sorting activities to go with them. Um, games with multiple spellings in them. And most importantly, templates for games that you can make yourself. Because if you could get, if you could teach different ways to spell a sound in your classroom and wrap up the lesson with kids work, with working groups of fours playing games that consolidate the different ways to sound uh, the different ways to spell a sound, that's a great way to consolidate your teaching. So we have templates for games. They're all free on our website. So um, have a look, check them out. Thank you all for sharing that and all that you have available for everybody. We appreciate it. Yeah. 
I'm looking on both sites now and completely distracted. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you all for sharing your learning with us or sharing all that you know with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Are so grateful. Well, it's amazing. It's amazing what y'all are doing. So thank you for broadcasting ideas that are in alignment with the science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, thanks, Sammy. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.